Well, as somebody relatively new to the United States, um, I love learning new things about your culture. Um, and just this week, I learned something that uh, you possibly learned in elementary school. I learned about the Jefferson Bible. Uh, some background about Thomas Jefferson. Let me pick these up. Uh, some background about Thomas Jefferson, of course, the third president of the United States and the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, you might also know he was a highly educated man. Uh, in his um, original degree, he studied mathematics, metaphysics, philosophy at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. A few years later, he was admitted to the Virginia Bar, and uh, in his law career, he pursued reforms to slavery. Uh, Jefferson was well-read in the English classics and political works and uh, history and religion and ethics and nature. Um, he also was an accomplished um, architect. He designed uh, his own estate home, and uh, he was a musician too. He would apparently play violin or cello as a duet with his wife who played the piano. Uh, a remarkable man. But this is what I learned this week. Um, Jefferson also authored his own version of the Bible, uh, the New Testament anyway. Uh, Jefferson was a great admirer of Jesus, but as a philosopher and a modernist, he couldn't abide by the idea of Jesus as divine. And so in the years after his presidency, uh, Jefferson started to curate his own version of the Bible. Uh, literally using a razor and glue, uh, he selected the parts of Jesus' life that made sense to him as a rationalist. He kept Jesus' birth, but he got rid of the angels. He kept Jesus' teachings, but he got rid of the miracles, pretty much. The account ends with Jesus buried in a tomb, and there's no resurrection. And Jefferson called his book The Life and Morals of Jesus, and apparently he would read it regularly at nighttime. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I think many people have a Jeffersonian attitude when it comes to the Bible. Um, there are parts that we like and we choose to read them, and then there are parts that we don't like and so we ignore them. Um, functionally, it's the same as cutting them out of the Bible with a razor. And some people go even further. Um, they find certain parts of the Bible so problematic that they throw the entire book away. Today's Bible passage is one of those passages. Uh, in my own family, uh, I have a family member who says, that this particular story of Abraham and Isaac and, and the request to sacrifice him, that's the reason why she can never become a Christian. She just finds this passage too challenging. And so what I want to do is look at a story like this. We'll look at this story particularly. And I'm going to share some tools. Um, there are plenty that I'll teach you over the years, but I'm just going to share a couple today. Some tools for understanding the difficult parts of the Bible. And that way, when we come across challenging sections like this, we have a way of approaching it that helps us to look for the deeper meaning without having to take out the razor. So why don't we pray and we'll ask God to, uh, to help us as we open this challenging passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please help us to see clearly today as we open this part of your Holy Scripture. And give us minds that understand and hearts that are ready to learn. Show us the beauty of the plans and promises that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we are in the middle of our, new, uh, our Old Testament series following the story of Abraham and God's promises to him. And we've been working our way through Genesis 12 to 25 over the last month or so. And the story you'll remember started when God called Abraham out of the land of his father. And he called him to go to a land that God would show him. And uh, we got a little pub quiz now because God made three promises to Abraham back in chapter 12. And I want to make sure nobody forgets. Uh, anybody, what are the three promises? 
land, nation, blessing. I feel like a great teacher. Thank you. That was very gratifying. Um, yeah, clap to you, actually. You're the ones who remembered. So God had promised to give Abraham this land, this, this area that we now know as Israel. And God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation and that he would have so many offspring. In fact, we skipped this little part, but he would have so many offspring that it would be like if you could count the sand on the seashore or if you could count the night sky stars. Here in Napa, we can see lots and lots. He would have that many descendants. And lastly, God promised that Abraham or through Abraham, uh, he would bless Abraham and that he would bring blessing to the entire world through his family. Fast forward 24 years from that original promise, there was a big problem. Can anybody remind me what the big problem was? The child, Sarah, was unable to have children. Abraham had been waiting 24 years for God to bring about that cornerstone promise, right? This heir or this child. Um, Abraham was 75 years old when this story began. And now he's 99 and Sarah is uh, 89. Uh, they were past childbearing age and Sarah had never been able to have children. And it seemed like this impossible promise as they got older and older. But we had a breakthrough in the story last week, which was that when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 89, God spoke to Abraham again. This time next year, he said, you'll have a baby. And true to his word, that's exactly what happened. A year later, as uh, Lisa just read for us in Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to this baby, Isaac. Um, his name means laughter. And Sarah comments on the joy that it is to finally have a baby after all of those years of infertility. God has brought me laughter, she says, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I've borne him a son in his old age. God's promises were coming true, and just as he said they would, and this miracle baby was born in impossible circumstances. And that's why Genesis 22 comes as such a shock. How could God ask Abraham to do the impossible? How could he ask him to kill his own son? Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. Abraham replied, and God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. I cannot imagine what was going through Abraham's head, Abraham's mind, as he listened to this voice of God that he'd heard so many times before. And now the same voice, the same voice that had promised him a son, was now telling him to take that son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. It's the impossible command, isn't it? How can God ask Abraham to kill his own son? Uh, we don't end up getting any insight into Abraham's mind and uh, what he must have been thinking. A commentator, Kent Hughes, uh, calls this passage artfully minimalist. He says it's artfully minimalist. We're left to fill in the blanks ourselves. We're left kind of questioning Imagine those words from God would have rolled around and around in Abraham's head that night. Perhaps he was sleepless, I imagine so. That word from God, your son, your only son, this son whom you love. It's the impossible command. And so how does Abraham respond? Well, he obeys. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. 
On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. It's quite an extraordinary response, isn't it? Um, Abraham obeys God. He, He packs the donkey, packs the firewood. He sets out with Isaac and the servants and they travel for three days until Mount Moriah is visible. Um, I can only guess what the mood must have been as they traveled. <laughs> um, would they have spoken? I imagine Abraham was probably dark and stormy. We don't know what Isaac was thinking. Well, finally, we get an, an insight in verse 5. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Um, I underlined this sentence when I was preparing for the sermon. I do that every week. You know, I, I take it and I asked the question, is Abraham telling a lie to the servants here? You know, I don't think the servants knew what God had said to Abraham. I don't think the servants knew that he was going to sacrifice his son. And certainly, Abraham's not going to say to his servants while Isaac is there, just wait here, I'm going to go and sacrifice my son. Oh, sorry, Isaac, cover your ears. Did the servants know, but maybe Isaac didn't know? Uh, We're going to go over here and worship. Are they pulling the wool over Isaac's eyes? It makes it sound very conspiratorial. Well, perhaps Abraham was speaking the truth. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We'll come back to you. Could Abraham somehow believe that both he and Isaac would return? Um, Well, let's find out what happened next in verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. Uh, He himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up to his father, and he says, Father, Um, by the way, Isaac is probably 12 or 13 years old at this point. Um, Back in verse 1, it says this story takes place sometime later. Uh, Verse 6 shows us that Isaac is young and strong. Perhaps he's the the stronger of the two. Uh, Isaac is the one who's ready to carry the wood up the hill. Dad maybe needed a piece of wood to, to help him walk. He goes up the mountain path. Isaac is also old enough to be suspicious about what is going on. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abram, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, said Isaac, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows there's something missing, the animal to be sacrificed. And so Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son. The tension is palpable, and I can feel it even in the room here, because we know who the lamb is, don't we? It's Isaac. It seems like one of those half-truths we tell our kids to protect them from the reality, and we don't tell them the whole story, just enough to make them feel like everything's going to be okay. But older kids don't usually fall for that. And so the two of them, they go on together, and then the drama reaches its peak in verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abram built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I have so many questions about how this played out. Um, As one commentator conjectured, Isaac was probably strong enough to overpower his father if he was the young and strong one. So it seems unlikely that Isaac was an unwilling victim. Perhaps Isaac had understood the whole time what was going on. Or perhaps he understood for the first time when his father asked him to reach out your hands and put them together for me. And he reached out with a rope and began to bind him. 
And then I wonder about Abraham. You know, he'd probably witnessed human sacrifices as part of his moon worship, the moon cult, where he grew up in the land of Ur. And now it seemed that he was being called to the same grotesque worship. We'll go over there and worship. The same worship by his new God. When we read the rest of the Bible, God condemns child sacrifice in the strongest terms. Uh, It's there in Leviticus and Chronicles and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, Child sacrifice is abhorrent to God. And so rightly we ask, how can God ask Abraham to do the same thing? Abraham raises the knife to kill his son. And that's when the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven. Verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, the angel called. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your only son, your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a a ram caught by its horns. He went over, he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Such a relief, isn't it? Isaac is saved and Abraham kills this ram instead. And God has provided just like Abraham had said back in verse 8. And even just reading it now, I can, I can feel all these little words that you just hear again and again in the Bible. Instead of him, he does this. Well, I wonder if there's anybody here who's hearing this story for the first time. I don't know if you, you are. I wonder what you think. Like I said, some people find this a very hard story to swallow. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, he calls this a disgraceful story. In his book, The God Delusion, I put the quote there. I wasn't sure whether I should dignify it, but I think it's worth reading because many people come to this opinion. Um, He says, God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar. He put firewood upon it. He trust Isaac upon the wood, on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of the last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all tempting Abraham and testing his faith. Uh, This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse and bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. And yet this legend is one of the three, uh, the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic uh, religions. Uh, This is a scathing review of the story, by the way. And uh, Dawkins... For Dawkins, this story makes God look like a a capricious bully, tempting Abraham in this cruel joke. And, you know, as I said, many people find this a persuasive argument. Um, I don't think Dawkins is right. Just to set that clear, I do not think he's right. And so, like I said before, what I want to do is share a couple of tools. Um, There are many, and we're going to keep working on this as weeks and months go on. But I just want to share a couple of tools that will help us when we encounter a part of scripture that presents us as challenging. Um, And these tools will help us dig for the deeper meaning and they'll make us better readers of the Bible as well. And the first tool is this question that we need to ask of any Bible text, which is what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? So the whole Bible is a disclosure of who God is and, and how God is at work in the world. And as we read through the Bible, we get this very clear picture of what God is like. Um, his character of goodness and mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness. God doesn't tolerate injustice and God doesn't tolerate evil. And so Richard Dawkins' impression of God as this capricious bully, well, it, it doesn't make sense of the God that we meet in the Bible. Even if we think through the last few chapters, 
right? God's big plan has been to bless Abraham and to bring blessing to the world through Abraham's offspring. So it doesn't make sense that God would torture Abraham along the way. That's not blessing, is it? That's awful. And uh, it wouldn't be blessing to Abraham. And actually, if God did that, it would make God evil. And if God is evil, then it's hard to see how he would want to bring any blessing to the entire world. It would be logically inconsistent. And so if the passage doesn't teach us the the Dawkinesque view, if we can put it that way, what does it teach us about God? Well, however hard we find this command to sacrifice Isaac, what we do learn is that God will provide. Abraham had learned to trust God throughout the 25 years of waiting. Abraham had his ups and downs in faith, like all of us do. It was hard to trust God when you have to wait that long. And in hard circumstances, it can be difficult to trust God. But God had made good on those promises. God had provided for Abraham. And so why shouldn't God provide in this circumstance? When we read the story through that lens, it it makes a lot more sense of verse 5. Abraham truly believed that both he and Isaac would return from Mount Moriah, even if that meant that he had to go through with killing Isaac. The writer to the Hebrews makes that exact argument in in chapter 11. Um, It says this, and you've got it there on your page. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That is, God had promised that these offspring, they would come through this child, not, not number two, not number three, through Isaac. Abraham reasoned, verse 19, that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. It's right there in the last sentence. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. I mean, Abraham had already experienced a resurrection in his life. A son had been born to him in impossible circumstances. When life, a life had been born where all hope was dead. And so why couldn't God do that again? After all, God had said to Abraham just a year earlier, in Genesis 18, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? And it's a question for all of us when circumstances seem impossible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is nothing that is too hard for him. The answer is definitely no. There is nothing that's too hard for the Lord. There is nothing that God cannot accomplish if he so wills it to be. And that brings us to the second tool for understanding difficult passages like this, which is the question, what does it teach us about Jesus? So if the whole Bible is a disclosure of who God is and how he's at work in the world, then as we read it, what we see is that this story is all pointing towards Jesus. It's all culminating in Jesus. And so when we read an Old Testament story like Abraham and Isaac, we read it through the lens of a story that ultimately points to Jesus. And that's where this story takes on a whole new meaning, Um, because many years later, another son would walk up the very same mountain with wood on his back, willingly allowing himself to die as a sacrifice. And I'm talking about Jesus, of course, God's only beloved son, my son whom I love. Do you remember God saying that to him at his baptism? The wood that he carried, of course, was the cross. A Mount Moriah where God had told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Well, that was the site where hundreds of years later, Jerusalem would be built. The very same mountain and the temple and the the center of the Jewish sacrificial system. And for hundreds of years, it was in the temple through that sacrificial system that God provided for the forgiveness of sins. 
But again, all of those sacrificial lambs that were killed in the temple, they all pointed ahead to the one true sacrifice. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And of course, in Jesus, we see not just a metaphorical raising of the dead. After dying on the cross, Jesus spent three days in the tomb before being resurrected to new life. And coincidentally, that's the same amount of time from when God issued the command to Abraham to kill his son until his son was restored to him on the mountain when God provided the ram. And his son was given back to him from certain death. There are so many parallels. A couple of little tools there. See, God knows what it's like to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son. He doesn't withhold anything from us. He did that because he's the God who provides even when it seems impossible. Our God is the God that we can trust even in the face of death. And so the passage asks us what God asked Abraham. Do you trust me? Do you trust me even in the face of death? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult story that reveals your character. It reveals your promises. It reveals your faithfulness. And it reveals your son Jesus Christ to us. Father, help us to trust in him even in the moment of death. We pray this for each person in the room today and for all who will hear about Jesus on this holy day. We pray that for those people who are suffering right now uh, across the world, for those of us who are worried about what's coming next. Father, we pray that we would be to trust in you. Father, we exalt your name as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.